0: Week four of True Colors, and we've talked about love and how that manifests itself in hospitality the first week. We talked about surrender uh, the second week of the series, and then uh, last week we talked about faithfulness and how worship and and being in a a position of desperation before God that really fuels our walk with Him and fuels our obedience with Him. And today we're going to talk about peace because there are a lot of people that are looking for Uh, peace in our life because there's strife and there's struggle and there's difficulty. And, you know, and sometimes Christians, we get this tag thrown on us that we're just being fake and insincere. And uh, we want to instead say, no, that's not who we are. And even more than that today, there's a a question that a lot of times that people who are not Christ followers uh, want to ask us and they say, you know what? God's kind of mean, isn't he? Uh, isn't, isn't that what he does? I mean, that doesn't, doesn't God punish you when you don't do things the right way? I mean, as long as you walk the run just the right way, you're okay. But if not, doesn't then, then he, then he punish you? Isn't that what he does? And so I, I would tell you real quickly, uh, kind of you know, cut to the end of the story real quick a little bit. But no, he doesn't punish you. As a matter of fact, God does not punish his children. Uh, if, you say, if you're a Christ follower, uh, God does not punish you. If you believe that God punishes you for something that you have done, then uh, you are negating what Jesus did on the cross because he took his punishment. He took our punishment upon him while he was on the cross. And so uh, he has been, he took the punishment, the payment, the penalty for our sins. He He did that for us. Uh, if you are not a Christ follower, yeah, God would punish you. Uh, and he would punish you forever uh, because you have determined that you do not want to be in a relationship with him. You'd be separated from him for forever. There's a, a place for that. It's not very special, but we call it hell. And uh, that's also what the Bible calls it. So that's sort of how that works. But God disciplines his children. Uh, And so... There's a big difference between this idea of discipline and punishment. So if you're watching online today, I hope that you'll especially tune in with us. And uh, I hope maybe you might take some notes and, you know, and share some thoughts that you have with others while you're online today as our online uh, participation just continues to grow. Uh, So thanks for being online and watching with us today. And want to again, welcome everybody in LaGrange uh, and to what's going on here and in LaGrange today because it's just been a really tremendous day already. So we are excited to see uh, what God is going to continue to do. So I have two boys. I also have a girl. Uh, and so I have Josh, Jonathan, and Hannah. I think I've told you this before, but we were thinking about naming them all Bible names, but we couldn't figure any out, so we called them Josh, Jonathan, and Hannah. So uh, Josh and Jonathan are very best friends. Uh, they have been very best friends since the youngest when Jonathan was born. And uh, but they're boys, and so every now and then they like to wrestle a little bit, like uh, to push around a little bit. So when they were a lot younger, I was at home with them one day, and Lori was not there, and they were just you know arguing with each other and pushing and you know and jabbering each other just a little too much. And I said enough, just enough. So look, Josh, go outside and get a switch, and then you're gonna come back in here and you're gonna beat your brother. And he just looks at me like, Dad has gone crazy. And I said, Jonathan, go outside and get a switch and come back in here, and you're going to beat your brother or spank him or whip him or switch or whatever you want to call it. I don't remember what I said. But I said, go grab something and come back in here because you guys are not listening to me. So I tell you what I'm going to do I'm going to let you give each other a spanking. I'm a genius. So anyway, so to go outside and Josh, who's the oldest one, and he's very thoughtful uh, and he goes in and it, they didn't come right back in. I mean, it took him three or four minutes, right? And so he comes back in with a switch about this long and maybe the width of three human hairs. It was tiny, right? And then, uh, so he comes back in first and then Jonathan comes in. Jonathan's the youngest one. And Jonathan comes in with the branch of a tree, And I'm like, okay, you know, I already said this is what we're going to do. So I said, all right, so Josh, uh, you're oldest. You get to go first. So Jonathan leans across the table. And so, you know, they're little, like five or six years old, right? And so he takes this. And so Josh takes that switch and goes like this. I said, are you done? Yes, sir. And Jonathan's like, (laughs) hey, it's all right. And so I'm thinking this is all good because Jonathan is learning something here. And so Jonathan goes, I said, it's your turn now. So he says, all right. So he goes over and picks up that tree branch. I'm thinking, this is going to be great. And, but he is, I mean, he's swinging for the fence and I'm like, I'm like you are done. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, a whole different deal. You know, this thing's kind of crazy. Dad's lost his mind. You know, they come home, you know, Lori gets home later and she says, uh, so what happened with the boys today. Well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> You know, sometimes you tell your wife something and she doesn't say anything. She just kind of looks off in the distance, looks out the window or something. And, you know, she's sitting there thinking, why did I marry him? Why did I marry him? So she never said anything. I shouldn't have done anything. But anyway, I, I kind of figured that's what she was thinking. And, and so, so sometimes uh, you know, a, a dad does something that in, the, in that moment doesn't seem to make any sense. But see, I was much more concerned not about making them be great five, six, seven-year-olds, but to make them really good 35, 45, 55, 65-year-olds. Uh, And so a lot of things I did, parenting-wise, was not trying to do right then. I was trying to do later on, accomplish something for later on. And a lot of times, God does something. And it doesn't make sense to us at first, but you realize, oh, this is what he was trying to accomplish. Oh, I get it. And you begin to understand it It makes sense just a little bit. So maybe you remember, but at one point in history, uh, the Jews, the Israelites, the children of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Moses comes along and says, I tell you what, God says, I want you to lead them out of Egypt. And so Moses says, okay. And so they leave out of Egypt. And there's a lot more to the story than this, but I'm just kind of set in context this morning, right? So they get out of Egypt. They get to the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army has changed his mind, and so they were coming after the Israelites to capture them and take them back to Israel, which was no small feat because there's about a million Israelites, we think, at this point in history, and so they're, they're standing at the edge of the Red Sea. There's a wall of fire behind them that God has caused to rise up so that the Pharaoh's army cannot come and get the children of Israel, the Jewish people, and but there's the Red Sea in front of them, like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And so Moses is standing right there at the front of the line and against the edge of the Red Sea. And he says, Lord God, what should we do? And God says, part the water. Moses goes, excuse me? Do what? Part the water. And so Joshua is right there beside Moses and says, so, you've been praying. So, what does God say to do? He says, he says part the water. Do the what? Part the water. He wants me to part the water. What does that mean? I don't know. He says, put my staff up in the air. So, you know, so Moses puts his staff up in the air. And whoosh, the water begins to part. And they go, we should walk. Let's go. So, they go walking through, right? And they're, you know, and it's great. They're walking through. The water had been, it had been, it had been wet. Now, it's dry land. They're walking through. They get to the other side. All of the Israelites get out of the Red Sea and then the water collapses. Pharaoh's army drowned, dead, finished, kaput, floating. I mean, that's amazing. They've been delivered from 400 years of slavery. They're set free. They see this is a huge victory that's been given to them by the hand of the Lord. And then Moses says, let's go to the promised land. They go, yeah, let's go to the promised land. And they said, but wait, 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 wait we should send some spies first. And so they find a dozen guys and they send these spies into the promised land and said, so go check it out and then come back and give us a report. So they check it out and come back and 10 of them come back and say, we shouldn't go in there. Two of them say, yeah, we should go. We should go. We should go. Joshua and Caleb said, we should go in. But they said, no, 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 no. And so they listen to these 10 guys. And so they're at this place called Kadesh Barnea and they decide to be disobedient to the Lord. And so they walk away from God. And God says, listen, if you're going to walk away from me, if you're going to ignore me, I need to teach you something because I love you so much. And I'm going to be very patient and teach you. If you don't listen to me the first time, I will tell you over and over and over again, because I love you so much. And he says, but here's what's going to happen. I can see the obstinance and the stubbornness in your hearts. And so what's going to happen is that you are going to be in the desert for 40 years. And they're like, really, really? And so that's what happens. They're in the desert for 40 years. And so then, it's year 39. They've been in the desert for 39 years, waiting to go in the promised land. And they get to the edge of the promised land. They're right there, year 39. They can see it, where they're going. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. It says, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atherim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And it's Negev, that's the word for the desert uh, in, uh, uh, in Israel. And then it says, and Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. He says, look, instead of going, he says, here's what we'll do. Instead of going in there and looting these people after we defeat them, we're just going to destroy the cities. We're going to conquer the people and we're going to move on. Because God said, look, I don't want you doing all this other stuff. Don't loot them and take all their stuff. Just go in there and conquer them. That's what I want you to do. And so they said, this is what we'll do, Lord. Uh, we'll just go in and we'll conquer the cities. And the Lord, it says, heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, those are the inhabitants of the promised land, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. They did what they said they were going to do. And so the name of the place was called Horma. Now, this is really important. That's why I've got it underlined. Uh, the name of this place was called Horma because 39 years earlier, after they've come out of the Red Sea, and they make the decision that, you know, we don't need God. We can do this on our own. And they turned their backs on God for the first time. They were at Horma. That's where it started. They said, we don't need God. We don't need you. We can do this on our own. And so you kind of flip around a little bit in Numbers, and I'm going to show you how all this comes about. So Numbers chapter 14 Verse 44, it says, but they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country. And so this is where all this started. And they said, you know what? We're going to do our own battles and do our own thing. We don't need you, God. And so Moses said, no, 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 no. We shouldn't do this. You're not listening. We're not being obedient to God. And they said, and so they said, we're going Anyway. And when they would go into battle, they'd take the Ark of Covenant with them, but they didn't take the Ark of the Covenant with them this time, so they didn't have God's presence with them, and they didn't have Moses with them. Because it says, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Moses said, listen, if you're going to go do this, you're outside of God's will. I I can't stop you, but I'm not going with you. It says, then the Amalekites and the Canaanites, who lived in that hill country, came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So this is where everything started. It started right there, and so now it's, they're, uh, and now that it's 39 years later, they're back at the same place. And, you know, and, and, and maybe you've had some past places uh, of defeat. Uh, maybe you've had some, uh, but, uh, you know, where you can think back, wow, I wish I hadn't done it that way. I wish I had reconsidered. I wish I hadn't said what I said to her. I wish I hadn't been so arrogant. I wish I hadn't taken something that wasn't mine. Uh, I, I wish I, I had responded differently. You may have something like that's happened sometime in your past, but now you say, well, look, I see how God has been really good to me. And, and so, uh, you know, so it's 39 years later. And so the people of Israel are going, okay, well, I, I remember we, we that was a bad idea, but I, I, I remember um, that, what I should do is I should trust the Lord. So we go back to, to Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. So from Mount Hor, now that God has, again, just done what he said that he would do. He said, look, I'll give you these cities if, you know, I'll stand by you and, and you don't, just don't take the stuff and, and and loot people. And he says, okay, well, great. But it says, so then they say, you know what, we've done all this, but Um, I'm not sure we even want to do this anymore. So they say, well, they start heading back to the Red Sea. They're going back to Egypt. And he says that they're going to go around the land of Edom. Now, what does that mean? All right. A lot of context this morning. So Numbers chapter 20, verse 21, it says, but he said, you shall not pass through. Who's this? says, this is the king of Edom. Because what Moses said was, look, we want to go through the promised land. It's right over there. We can see it. We just want to go through there. We just let us go through. And he says, no, I'm not going to let you go through. And and Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. And they're like, well, look, if we can't go through, we can't defeat him. Tell you what, we're just going home. We're going back to Egypt. This is dumb. Uh, And they've just totally lost their senses. So back in Numbers 21, so the people became impatient on the way, but he's, um, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I mean, they're tired of it. They start whining and going, God, what are you doing? That's the, here's the deal. This is what's so ludicrous to me is that God is providing for them, feeding them. Remember, this is an ancient civilization feeding them every single day, a million people. Manna every day. Quail in the evening. Now, and I know some of you are thinking this is like Bubba Gump, manna, right? Oh, we got fried manna. Uh, we got boiled manna. Uh, we got sautéed manna. Uh, we got uh, we 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 got we got manna. Uh, we we got we got manna bread. We got we got manna pudding. And, and, and like I mean, it just goes on. And like, how many times can I can I come over way to eat eat manna? And They're like, we we're just tired of. It. I'm so. It says we loathe, we hate this worthless food. Right. And they're just griping and complaining. And, you know, and here's the thing is that is that when you start griping and complaining against God and, and you ignore God, what does God do? Because God's got a track record. Right. Because, I mean, this is the eighth time that they have kind of risen up against God and go, you're so tired of you and we don't like you, and you're not doing what we wanted you to do, and you're not meeting our schedule, and you're not meeting our demands, and you're not taking care of us, and, and, I, and this food, I'm tired of it. You know, could we have something else? You know, I mean, in the ancient world, just to have food was huge, uh, but we're tired of this food, and we're tired of, of all these things, and I'm just sick and tired of it. And, and of course, you know, because you know what God's going to do. You know what God's going to do, right? I mean, you know what the next verse is. Because when you get angry at God, you know what happens. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so the mean people of Israel died. <laughs> See, you weren't expecting that, were you? You were saying, oh, so here's what he's going to do. And then God said, oh, I'm so sorry. So I'm tired of you having man. I said, how about you get some filet mignon twice a week? How about I arrange for some lobsters for you? Right? Because, you know, you don't think, oh, and God sent fiery serpents and they bit them and they died. Like, oh God, that's awful. You know, we we are, that never, if you ever went to vacation Bible school when you were little and they had those little, you know, little story time or you went to like a a children's church or something, you know, and it had somebody who was teaching and said, so children, let me tell you, we love Jesus, don't we? Yes, ma'am. And we love God, don't we? Yes, ma'am. And, and, but, what happens? What happens when you complain about God or you ignore God? What happens? And it goes, "We don't know, teacher. God sends fiery snakes and they kill you." <laughs> we are not teaching that at Crest Kids this morning. Someone like, Shh. "I was getting a little nervous." But but no, that, that that's what's going on there, right? That nobody thinks, oh, that's what's going to happen. But see, because God has been so gracious and so merciful, and so now He says, Arthur, what's up with this? And and He says, and He, he sends these 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 fiery serpents because that doesn't seem very loving. I mean, you know, nobody starts walking around. Hey, you know, uh, there's a book in the Bible called Lamentations about, you know, when somebody's kind of bothered with God and about half the Psalms are Psalms of lament where people are angry at God, but it never says that then God killed them. And, but see, the thing is, sometimes the people that you know who are far from God, who are not Christ followers, they say, see, see, right there, right there. If I don't do things exactly the way God wants me to do, he'll kill me. Or I'll go bankrupt. Or one of my kids will get sick. Or there'll be some problem that I've never had before will suddenly be a real problem for me. And my my car won't be able to run. Uh, I was making all kinds of advances at work and now I may lose my job. See, people are far from God. That's what they start thinking. So if I don't act a certain way and do things a certain way, then God's going to mess up my life. So in, in those moments, is God doesn't necessarily seem very loving. And that's the tension that people are far from God to sort of wrestle with. And so the people, of course, they're scared to death. I mean, right? And they say, Moses, do something. Moses, 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 do something. And so they, they, the people came to Moses in verse 7 and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So, I mean, that's huge. They didn't say, listen, we messed up. We made a mistake. They said, we have sinned. That, that's where it starts with returning to the Lord as you acknowledge who you are and what you have done and you don't blame somebody else. You say, it was me. I, I have sinned. He says, if we have spoken against the Lord and against you, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses said, okay, I'll pray for you. So Moses prayed for the people. And, and so God uses this event to make people turn around. You know, I, I, and snakes are kind of scary kind of things, right? I remember when I was a little boy, the first time I saw a snake at my parents' house and I saw it and turned and ran back to the house because, thought oh, this is terrible. I mean, I thought it was, the, you know, the end of life as I knew it. Um, and yeah, it causes you to turn around. So, so would God do something to cause us to turn around that would seem to be very extreme? Yeah. You know why? Because he loves you so much. Because sometimes he's got to get your attention. And you kind of be going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And he goes, listen. Not because he wants to hurt you, but because he loves you so much. He is desperate to get your attention. And so he prays. And it says, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now that seems to be a little crazy, doesn't it? You've been bitten by a poisonous snake, a fiery serpent. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to just look at, I just, I'm going, Moses, go make a bronze snake and put it on a pole and put it where everybody can see it. And when they look at it, they're going to be better. And so he said, that seems a little bit weird, right? You know, I, I, used to do a lot of, uh, used to do a lot of camping. Um, and I like to tell people now that then I went to, co- I went to, uh, college and studied hard and made good grades so that I can live inside and have air conditioning. So, um, uh, but, you know, so now, you know, camping is like going to Motel 6. Uh, but but I, I used to do a lot of camping. And uh, when I was in high school and when I was in college, and, you know, they would always tell you that um, you go to these wilderness survival places, they always tell you, looking if you get bit by a snake, what you should do is you pull out your knife and you cut an X where the snake has bitten you. And, right? And you, you suck the poison out. And, you know, I was like, well, well, of course, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, if a snake bites you, that, that's what you're going to do. That, of course, that's, uh, that's what I would do. Uh, and then, um, you know, then, you know, later on, you know, I had somebody tell me he really knew what was going on. He said, look, here's the deal. He says, if you get bitten by a snake and you're sure it's a poisonous snake, he says, you need to go to the emergency room. He said, I have antivenom there, and you're going to be a lot better off going there and getting some medicine that will take care of the poison. He said, because most people end up cutting themselves. They call themselves all kind of damage and infection, all that kind of stuff. from cutting themselves and trying to get the poison out on their own. Just go to the emergency room. And then he said, but, but, if you ever get in a situation and you're bitten by a poisonous snake and you realize that you are hours away from an emergency room and you're going to die, here's what you need to do. He said, look around and find a stick and and take that stick and then look around and then find like a piece of string or some uh, aluminum foil or like a gum wrapper or something and twist it into the shape of a snake and attach it to that pole and look at it, that stick with the, the aluminum foil snake you made on and you'll be better. Everybody's going, no, <laughs> nobody does that. <laughs> That's a doofus kind of move. That, that, who would do that? that that's, that's dumb. Right? So, so, so to understand what God is doing in a difficult situation where God has allowed something into your life that's hard, and He's trying to get your attention. And you, you have to understand that, that He is your father. Now, now here's the thing: is a lot of us have fathers that we're like, ah, oh, my father, uh. Right, so no. Keep this in mind, real quickly. Your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, in the Lord's Prayer it says, "Our Father who art in heaven." Father, that's the word "Abba." There's nothing significant about that word. That's like the very first words in in Hebrew that come out of a baby's mouth. In English, it's "dad, dad, 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 dad." One of the first words that come out of a baby's mouth. Uh, in in Hebrew is Abba, Daddy. Oh, it's it's that little kid sitting there going, and sees his dad walking in the door. Abba, 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 Abba. Right? And and so and and Abba, Daddy comes over and picks him up and woo, and he loves it because he's been waiting on his father to get home all day. And so it, that's what we're talking about. A heavenly father, intimate relationship. So a great dad, a great father, number one, will look at the big picture. See, when, when, when my boys were arguing and pushing and shoving all day long when they were young, I said, look, here's what I want you to do. Because you're not listening to me, so I want you to do this instead. I did something weird, but it got their attention. It changed things for them. They understood a little bit about what it meant to love one another more than they had understood that 20 minutes earlier. You know, when, so you look at the big picture. You know, it's like when, um, I'm, and please don't get the picture that I'm this guy who works around the house all the time because my wife would tell you that if he tells you he works around the house all the time and loves doing that kind of stuff, he's lying. Um, but I've always had a wood-burning fireplace, and so we're always cutting wood and chopping wood and splitting wood. And so it was real important to me to teach my boys to work. And so my, uh, and so a lot of times, I'm, you know, work was on Saturday was I was out uh, cutting wood and splitting wood. And so um, my oldest, Josh, he, I said, come outside, you need to stick firewood today. He's like seven or eight years old. I'm like, he says, why? I said, because you've got to learn to work. He says, I think I've got it covered. <laughs> I'm like, no, you're coming outside. Well, I want to stay inside. It's Saturday. I don't want to go there. I said, no, what's what we're going to do? We're going to go outside. We're going We're going to work. And so he is just, he doesn't like it. He's a very pout and he's leaning against the tree. And I am just like, I will throw you across the yard. I've had it with you. Just straighten up. Right. And it's a good thing that I'm able to take some of my, my angst out on the wood. Cause I'm ever splitting wood. And if you've ever split wood, you know, you split wood for about 15 minutes and it's, <sighs> you know, so I'm, I'm at that point And I, you know, and he's and and then I hear somebody pick up a piece of wood behind me. I'm thinking he's coming to kill me. And then, but he's, and I look over there and he just starts stacking the wood and he's little, but he stacks the wood for about 45 minutes or so. And I just said, Hey, Josh, I said, let me tell you something. I said, the first 20 minutes you were out here today. I was like, I didn't want to have anything to do with you. I said, you're acting like a boy. I said, but for this last 45 minutes, you've been working like a man. I said, any man on the planet would be proud to call you his son because of what you're doing right there. I said, what changed? He said, my attitude. Like, exactly. Exactly. Because, see, I'm real concerned about him at 25, 35, 45, and 55, much more than I'm concerned about him at seven. So a great dad always looks at the big picture. The second thing is a great dad will cause or allow pain if it saves his child. My younger son, Jonathan. He's riding his bicycle, training wheels on it. He feels the need for speed all the time. He still does, right? If Jonathan and I can find a way to go, go get there further, faster, we're going to do it. And, but anyway, he takes off down the driveway, and he is going, 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 going. Our driveway is on a hill, and I see him going. I look out of the corner of my eye, and I see this SUV coming down the road, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, he's going to stop. But he doesn't see it because he's like, I've never been this fast in my life. And he's... And I'm thinking, this is not going to go well because that SUV doesn't act like they see him either. And I'm thinking, he doesn't have enough control to know what to do. And so I take off running. And I'm running and running. And I'm thinking, I've got to catch him. i got to catch him. i got to catch him. And I, and I get to this point, this realization that there's no way I'm going to be able to catch up with him and stop him and keep him from hitting that SUV. And he's got a helmet on, but that's not going to save him. Helmet versus SUV, that's not going to work out. And so I end up at the last second, I lunge for him and jump and... Bam, slap him in the head. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm saving your life. I said, I just rolled through a rose bush for you. Why did you knock me off my bike? Why did you hit me? Because he was just so mad. I'm like, I'm saving your life, right? So am I going to do that? Am I going to knock my kid off his bike and scrape up his arm to save his life? Absolutely. Absolutely, I'm going to do that. A great dad will protect the relationship that he has with his children. See, God had showed them grace and mercy, grace and mercy, grace and mercy over and over and over again. And they don't get it. And he says, Okay, I'm going to get your attention. Eight times he's been merciful, ninth time, snakes. It changes, it's different. He said, I got to get your attention. They were about to head back to Egypt. He was going to lose them. After 39 years of being patient, they're like, you know what? We don't want you. We want to go back to Egypt. He was about to lose them. So would he do something that seems a little out of character to get their attention because he loves them so much and he wants the very best for them? Absolutely. 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 Because if they turn their backs on God at that point, they lose eternity. And, you know, and, and, and most children never think that dad is fair if short-term happiness is their goal, right? If you ever had one of your kids, when you grounded them after a week, they come in and say, hey, you know what? What I did last week, that was really bad. I need to be grounded for another week. I tell you what, dad, you took my car keys. I really screwed up. Why don't you just take my car away? Let's go sell it. That didn't happen, does it? It's because says, it's not fair. My other friend he gets to do this. Why do, how, I don't get to, How come I don't get to stay out late? Why 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 do I get this discipline and my, my friends don't? I mean what, what 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 No, see we never in that moment we never think it's the fair thing. We 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 never see discipline as a blessing. Let me show you this from Hebrews chapter 12. It says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So if God loves you, he disciplines you. If you are never disciplined by God, maybe you don't have a relationship with him. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you didn't love your kids, you wouldn't discipline them, would you? If you didn't care about them, you let them do whatever they wanted to do. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, for the moment, in that second, all discipline seems painful. In that moment, you're like, this is not fun. It seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, but later, later on, it doesn't make sense at the time, but later on it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It didn't make any sense, but God wanted to save them. God wanted to change them. It didn't make any sense. Because he loved them so much. And so the truth is, is there are some things that only the father can fix. Uh, Some things that you can't fix on your own. So God says, hey, Moses, I want you to go make a bronze pole. and I want you to put a snake on it. That's what I want you to do. And see, in the Bible, bronze represents judgment. So in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the the animals would be sacrificed on a bronze altar because bronze had to be uh, heated up and melted, and so it got all the impurities out of it, so it's, it's symbolic of judgment. Uh, snakes are symbolic of, of evil, and almost everywhere in the Bible where snakes are referred to is always something evil, uh, and you know, and you say, well, are all snakes evil? Well, no, and because you're asking that because you have a snake, and I just say you're weird. Um, so, so, so here's the deal. Um, Moses says, oh, "All right, so I, um, uh, so I prayed, and uh, God told me to make a uh, a bronze pole, and so I, I, I made this uh, this this bronze pole, and and he said, uh, uh, put a uh, um, um, uh, a bronze uh, a bronze snake on it, and So, um, if you look at it, you'll live. So, I'm just going to leave this right here. I'm going back in my tent. Shalom, shalom. Really? I'm I'm, I'm about to die. My leg is swollen like a self-rising biscuit, and and you want me to come over here and just look at this, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's what God said to do. He said, if you'll look at it, that that, that you'll be saved. And see, and, and this... Doesn't make any sense. But see, what he says is that, look, you have an evil in you, a poison in you, and you need it out. And God says, the way to get the poison out is to place your faith in me. Trust me, by looking here. See, where there's judgment and evil, there's going to be hope and Peace, because I'll provide for you a way out. I'll provide a way of healing for you. Just look. Just trust. And so let's tie all this together. So over in John chapter 3, it says... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Okay. And then it says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the next verse you're very familiar with. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so, you say, Arthur, what's going on with this? Maybe you've, maybe you've seen, have you ever seen this symbol before? The snake on a stick, you ever seen it anywhere before? See, have seen on ambulances, right? Right, it looks like this. You ever seen that before? Snake on a stick? It's called the rod of Asclepius. Asclepius was a demagogue, half son of Apollo, half son of man, and he supposedly had the, the power of healing. He said, Arthur, that is so cool. God told Moses to put a snake on a stick so that we would have a symbol for ambulances. That's amazing. Oh, no, no. That's not it. Asclepius was said to have the power of healing, so he actually, he ripped this off from Moses. But see what, what happened is that 1,400 years later is that God sent His Son Jesus, knowing that we had a poison in us called sin, and that poison in us called sin, He said, "I've got the cure for it." You see? We don't know that it looked like this. I always have kind of wondered if it looked like that. And God said, I have made my son to be evil for you, to be full of sin. Because the Bible says that all the sin of the world past, present, and future was heaped on Jesus when he was on the cross. I made my son go through that for you because you have a poison in you called sin. He'll take the punishment so that you can have a relationship with me. I love you so much, I'll kill my son for you that the only way that you can avoid getting to heaven is you have to step over my son's dead body. I'll enact judgment on my son so that I don't have to enact it on you. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? Even the Bible talks about that. And, and 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, uh, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. And for those of you who have a relationship with God through his son Jesus, you're like, wow, yes, I know that Jesus changed me and saved me. Because there's a huge difference between believing in the truth and trusting in the truth. And there are people in this room, you believe the story. You believe Jesus lived a sinless life, that Jesus was crucified for your sin, and even that he rose again. You believe it. You do. But you don't trust it. You've never really given him your life. But you kid today, you could find the cure for what you're looking for. The peace that you're missing you could find in a relationship with Jesus.